0: Welcome to the Black Magic Collective podcast presented by Black Magic Design. This podcast is made by filmmakers for filmmakers. Join at blackmagiccollective.com to enjoy free membership and all that comes with it. Now, on with the show. Film legalese, what exactly do we need to have in place before you start filming to make sure you can distribute a film? How do you set up profit sharing for those who work at discounted rates on your micro-budget film? What needs clearance to appear in your film and what's public domain? We're gonna answer those questions and so much more on today's show. I'm going to bring up our guest, also our secretary for Black Magic Collective on our board, and my film composer partner in, uh, well, partner in crime. I don't think we commit many crimes. Uh, Chris Edgar is with us. He is an entertainment lawyer as well as an award-winning composer and songwriter, and he and I produce several projects together, which is great for me because I get to do both musicals and have my legal stuff taken care of. Yay.
1: I'm full service that way, yes.
0: <laughs> I love it. Um, so let's talk about, let's just start in with what is the biggest mistake you see any filmmakers make when it comes to the legal side of the business?
1: Well, I think it's not having everything as documented as it needs to be. And specifically in the case of distribution, um, it's important to have all of your location releases, all of your background releases, all of your cast and crew agreements and so on in place Uh, at the point when you're seeking distribution, because you don't want to have to go back and locate people who, you know, you talked to two or three years ago, particularly if it was something that was, and I see these projects all the time now, you know, projects that were shot before COVID, and then they remained in sort of post-production hell for two years, and now they're finally coming out, but then the people involved forget that they didn't get a contract with their friend. Um, And even if someone is your friend, and, you know, you'll hear experienced filmmakers say this all the time, It's always important to have a contract if they're going to do anything relating to your film. Uh, Not only because it protects you from possible liability, but because a distributor is going to want to see all of the contracts that make up what are called the chain of title. That is anyone who might potentially have some kind of claim of ownership over the copyright, uh, over the IP of the film, um, is part of this chain of title. And you're gonna be required to give all all agreements that are relevant to the chain of title to the distributor. Um, so if the distributor notices that there's someone missing, then they may ask you to go back and, and locate someone who you may not have talked to in a while. And if they really and uh, maybe you don't have the best relationship anymore and they want money or something like that or they don't want to do it. So, yeah. So in, in order to avoid risk, uh, risking that, uh, have everything uh, from a paperwork or contract perspective done by the point that you're seeking distribution.
0: Uh, and one note on the heavy contracts with your friends. Uh, oh. Avoid not even you few falling outs, which does happen in business, obviously, all the time. But one of the best reasons to have a contract with your friends is so everything is laid out clearly. So we all know exactly what each of us are responsible for and doing. And so later, if there's some kind of disagreement on what's happening, it's like, well, this is what we decided in the contract. And that will save so many friendships i promise uh good morning everybody who's joining us james john gadali christopher i love that you're here thank you keep asking questions as we go um christopher we will talk about that in a second but first i want to talk about what is the chain of title um because you keep mentioning that and that's a term that you hear a lot when you get to distribution
1: yeah Yeah, and with with your distributor, with your distribution agreement, there's gonna be a long list of things that you have to provide to the distributor. And one of them is probably going to be a chain of title affidavit. So like I said a moment ago, that um, when people talk about the chain of title, what they're really talking about is who the owners of the IP rights, which are usually the copyright rights relating to the film are. So if your distributor asks for all the contracts that are relevant to the chain of title for your film, you have to provide all of the agreements that may relate in any way to the ownership of the film's IP. Now, the most obvious ones would be the agreement between the writer, the the screenwriter, and the production company that gives the production company the right to make a film based on the screenplay. But the group of agreements that are relevant to the chain of title is actually much broader. Uh, It actually includes all agreements with any of your cast and crew members. And why is that? Because uh, the distributor wants to make sure, and you want to make sure, that uh, you know, if you do have a falling out with the DP, or you have a falling out with a cast member, or something of that nature, that they can't come back and say, "Hey, I created part of your film, so therefore I have a right to share in the profits since I'm a part owner of the copyright." Uh, ideally, to deal with this problem, uh, and and to make sure that your distributor is happy, you want to include a provision in your contracts with all of the cast and crew. Uh, and anyone who did any kind of creative task relating to the film, you wanna include a provision saying that any contribution that they make to the film is a work made for hire, which is a term that you've probably heard, Uh, meaning that they don't keep any copyright interest in the film, uh, regardless of whether they made a a creative contribution. They essentially give up their copyright rights in exchange for the money that you pay them. Uh, The chain of title affidavit, which is the document I mentioned before that you'll probably have to provide to your distributor is a document that summarizes all of the agreements that are relevant to the chain of title. So it might it, you'd have a list that would say things like um, actor agreement with Joe Johnson, uh, director agreement with um, Susan Simmons, and so forth. And then you would list them in chronological order by date. Uh, and distributor the distributor wants this because it wants to make sure that no one but you has any kind of claim to the ownership of the copyright associated with the film, because it doesn't want, you know, after the film gets distributed, someone to come back and say, hey, I actually am a co-writer of this film and I'm not getting any profits from you. Um, So that's, that. for the purposes of distribution, that's what the chain of title, that's what it means
0: i'm getting so many so many questions i keep popping right down because you're making me remember things i do want to jesse um thanks for being here jesse he's a new york city-based actor director writer producer and he says i couldn't agree more with the importance of contracts even and especially among friends sounds like you have some personal uh, experience there jesse um and pacifico asked please talk about a good printed reference for this topic a good book There are several good books. Those of you who are watching, who have read them, please put them in the comments for Pacifico. Chris, I don't know if you've read a good book. You're just a lawyer-y type, so you know all these things. Uh, (laughs) You've done it from experience.
1: There's something called the pocket lawyer for filmmakers that I'll bet a lot of people who have distribution experience uh, are familiar with. Um, As far as template agreements, I mean, I always recommend, if you have the budget, working with an attorney because you don't want to end up using an agreement that, is not applicable to the situation that you're dealing with. Um, Sometimes I'll see filmmakers, for instance, who will get contracts from their friends who work in some completely different industry, like the tech business. Um, And they'll have contracts where they'll have, you know, items in the contract relating to inventions or something like that, that have nothing to do with the film, with the film business. So you want to make sure, uh, ideally that you talk to someone who knows what they're doing. Um, And if it has to be your friend who recently went through distribution, then hopefully they can help.
0: Uh, Chris, I always joked with Chris about how Google Google was my lawyer before he came on board to produce this. Yep.
1: Yeah, and that's actually kind of helpful to lawyers because when people create contracts using Google, then there tend to be problems, and then they have to go to the lawyer to fix the problem. So they think that they're saving money at the front end, but in fact, they end up spending money on on lawyers later.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so what kind of terms? what I put in for my cast, crew, financing, et cetera, to make sure that the contract is acceptable to a distributor.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, the the specific terms in the contract that you'll need uh, can vary based on the nature of the project, but there are a few examples of terms that you'll almost always need. Um, One of them is the work for hire clause that I talked about before, meaning meaning that you, the production company, uh, own all copyright interests associated with the film and no one else who made any contribution to the film does. Uh, And again, that's to make sure that nobody comes back and says, hey, I'm a co-author for the purposes of the Copyright Act, so so give me some money, distributor. Um, The second one would be an image and likeness release for anybody who's gonna be on set, and that includes cast and crew. So in other words, that's a provision of the contract saying that you can use uh, the image and likeness of the person who's signing the contract for any purpose associated with the film Um, you know, the usual language throughout the universe and in perpetuity.
0: And the reason that's important, guys, is because when you have your behind the scenes, if you want to make behind the scenes videos and put them out for marketing, photos for marketing, you could have somebody who's like, I don't want my photo in. We've actually had people say, you know, they're usually young and naive. I remember Chris and I had one where she's like, my likeness is my whole brand. So I can't work with you guys. We were like, okay, thanks. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, particularly if you're working with inexperienced people, and then that will help them see, you know, what they can expect to see when they do more work in the industry as far as contracts are concerned. So it can be educational uh, for them, too. Um, And oh, yeah, and the, the third example I would give would be a clause that says no injunctive relief. Um, this means basically that the person who's signing the agreement, the, the cast or crew member, and so forth, can't stop you from releasing the film, uh, even if they claim that you breached your contract with them. Like, for example, if there's uh, a dispute regarding how much a cast member was supposed to be paid, and they file a lawsuit, you know, heaven forbid, uh, if they have a no injunctive relief clause in their contract, they may be able to sue the production company for damages but they won't be able to ask a judge to stop the film from being released, which would obviously be a disastrous thing if it happened uh, for your distributor. And this is one of the reasons why your distributor will will want to see this clause in the contracts that you have.
0: (laughs) Christopher says, ha ha ha, bye then. Likeness is my brand. Come on. Yeah. (laughs) Chris and I have heard all the crazy things in the past. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about giving people a portion of the film profit in exchange for your services? Because I know a lot of people watching need to do a micro budget feature and they're like, I'll give you back in points if you help. How does that work for contracts?
1: Well, the shortest answer is that to give someone a share of profits, you need to put a clause in their contract that says that they'll get some percentage of the film's profits. But of course, that isn't always as easy as it sounds on the surface, because you have to, well, for starters, define what net profits are. The term net profits is usually used to just refer to profits. Like Sometimes you'll see profit sharing clauses in contracts uh, for relating to film that define net profits to mean all profits, that is revenues minus expenses for the film, but after subtracting the fees for tax services and sales agent fees and deferred payments to you know uh, actors and so forth, union and guild fees, and so on. And then after all of those deductions, the remaining amount is what gets split between the cast, crew, investors, and so on. Um, And so you'll want to think about how you're going to define the term profits. Uh, It probably won't be enough uh, to say in the agreement that profits just means revenues minus expenses, even though in a very general sense, that's what profits mean. Um, Before you sign an agreement giving your talent or the crew the right to a percentage of profits, you want to make sure that you consider the issue of how the investors in your film, if you have investors, are going to get compensated. So if your investors are going to get a share of the profits, you're going to want to understand how that will work before you start promising to pay a share of the profits to people on the production side. Uh, For example, an arrangement that you'll often see is uh, with independent film is for the investors to get 100% of any profits made by the film until their contributions, the payments they made, are paid back. And then after that point, the profits are divided equally between the investors and the people on the production side who got uh, points. Uh, in return for the work they did. Um, if that's what you wanna do, then your language describing that arrangement has to be consistent across all of the contracts that your production company enters into, uh, whether it's with the financiers, the investors, or the cast crew and other people uh, on the production side. Uh, as far as distribution goes, the good news for, the distri- the, for distribution purposes uh, is that your distributor probably won't care what arrangements you make with your talent and crew and financiers, et cetera, uh, about distribution of profits, as long as you don't put in any language that could be interpreted as binding your distributor, you know, to pay somebody other than you, which you definitely don't want to do. I'm sure none of you are doing that, but you know, But just so you know, don't put a clause in anyone's contract saying that the distributor is going to pay them their percentage of profits directly or something like that, because the distributor won't be happy with you trying to tell them what to do. They just want to pay you and, and and be done with it, generally speaking. So the distributor won't care as long as you don't try to bind them to do something, um, but that means that you're gonna have to handle the accounting of how the profits relating to the film get distributed without your distributor's help. And if you have a lot of uh, people who received points, a lot of people who received a share of profits, and you have a lot of investors, you may need to involve an accountant to help you with that. It may, I mean, you you won't wanna be doing it yourself. Like distributing quarterly profits checks or something like that is- It's what, a high some, quality
0: yeah. problem to have. It is,
1: that's true. It, made, it means that you made money. But, you know, uh, Pacifico you wanted, actually yeah.
0: has a good comment that it's very true. He says no budget filmmakers remember that you still need these releases and clauses, even if your film makes no money and you don't expect to earn any net profits. Because the truth mm-hmm. is, as a no budget filmmaker, you should ex- I do not want to say expect to earn no profits, be positive, put in the world that you're going to make millions of dollars. But the likelihood is you're not going to make money, but you still yeah. have to have all this in writing. And um, you need your especially cast who don't always understand uh, profit sharing. You need to make sure they understand. Like, you need to understand what Chris is saying because you're going to need to explain this as the producer of the film to your cast. Your cast needs to understand what deferred pay means because often they think that means they're going to get paid at the end of the movie. And really what it means is they're going to get paid if you make profit post all the money you pay out. Um, and an example, like for Chris and I, we did our last film, very micro budget and the right now the distributor is basically still owed more money from what they've the work they've done than we put into the film in total (laughs) so it's it's really highly it's very unusual for no budget films to make micro budget films to make any money whatsoever but it happens
1: yeah everyone's hope trying for that you know blair witch project
0: it happens okay um let's talk about so we've talked about profits in exchange for services, but what is a work for hire acknowledgement? Why yeah. do I need that?
1: Right, That. Um, yeah, that, we, that we, we discussed a moment ago, which is a, a clause in a contract that says that in return for getting paid by the production company, the cast or the crew member is giving up any intellectual property rights they might otherwise have in the film. So if we're talking about like a DP for your film, for instance, and they sign an agreement with the work for hire clause, even though they contribute to the look and feel of the film, they aren't considered an author of the film for the purposes of copyright. In other words, they don't own a share of the copyright because they've signed the work for hire clause.
0: Um, and also is when it comes to this work for hire clause, does it, I guess my question really is like, cause California has this whole AB five law that makes things a little mm. bit complicated. Um, indie filmmakers are used to paying everybody as an independent contractor. Um, is the work for hire different if they have to hire them as an employee? Do they have a different contract for
1: that? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I, a court is more likely, like if you don't have a work for hire clause, um, a court, if they have to you know, decide the issue of whether someone owns intellectual property rights and in, in what they've worked on, a court is more likely to consider an independent contractor to own a share of the intellectual property than an employee would be. But regardless of whether the person that you're working with is considered An independent contractor or an employee under the law uh you should definitely make sure to have this kind of clause in the contract because it's also it's not impossible for an employee uh to sort of inadvertently become an owner of i mean not usually in the context of film but in the context of any kind of you know project that involves creativity uh it's possible for them theoretically to become an owner of the copyright and you want to avoid that for the purposes we were talking about like not not angering the distributor
0: uh, James asks, says, a lot of contract examples I've seen are interpreted in accordance with the laws of the state of California. Is this standard in U.S. film industry or should it be based on your home state law?
1: Yeah, the reason you'll see what, what are called choice of law clauses, which is what James are talking about, um, that choose California law is because so many production companies and so many films uh, exist in California. And so the attorneys who draft the agreements for those projects, they're most familiar with California law. And so they'll they'll include a choice of law clause saying that California law is going to apply. Um, and sometimes you'll see New York law if it's going to be a project that takes place in New York uh, or, I don't know, Delaware law. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that, that's all that that's all that clause says. And you, you don't have to choose California law. it just become sort of the industry standard because that's where projects tend to be shot.
0: So even if I'm filming in Delaware, I could still put choose the California law Yeah, statement
1: yeah you can agree you could agree to imply the the law of singapore it would irritate the judge if he has to apply the the singapore law but i i've seen situations like that you know come up
0: that's hilarious okay so if i'm doing a sag micro budget project is it enough for the talent to sign a sag micro budget agreement because i know Um, I've, i've actually been yelling at filmmakers lately that i've been working with i'm like you need to have more than your SAG agreement. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about that.
1: Yeah, that that's an important point. Um, the The purpose of the SAG micro budget acknowledgement is just for the actor, uh, the SAG member, to acknowledge that they won't be paid according to the SAG pay scale. And by the way, SAG—I mean, everyone will probably know this, but that means Screen Actors Guild. Um, and it's it's a union, you know, where uh, with actors. Uh, they won't receive the pension and health benefits that SAG members are normally uh, entitled to and so on. That's what the the SAG micro budget uh, acknowledgement is meant to say. Um, You'll still need to do a separate agreement that shows how much they're going to be paid, uh, what dates they're going to be working on, the clauses that we talked about before, work made for hire, no injunctive relief, uh, and and so forth. Um, Because the SAG micro budget acknowledgement doesn't really protect the filmmaker at all. It's just meant to to avoid liability on the part of SAG, like so that someone doesn't come back to SAG and say, Hey, why don't I get, you know, pension and health benefits for working on this production? And SAG will tell them, well, it was a micro budget thing.
0: Yep. I always say get your, reg- get your regular release, your, your work for hire higher picture release, all that on top of it. And I will say that we've had some instances with some of our short filmmakers when they're in the first frame initiative, where the managers tried to come back for more money and stuff. And that, they, our filmmaker did not have the contract. They only had the SAG agreement and luckily they were able to get out of it, but it's just, you might as well back yourself up. Yeah. Uh, Jesse asks, I know indie filmmakers hire crew as independent contractors all the time, but strictly speaking, is it legal? This is that weird fine line that California's.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, particularly in California, um, because of this AB5 test that I'm sure a lot of you have heard about, um, which is intended to um, in, in, intended to cause a lot of people who would otherwise be viewed as independent contractors under the law to be treated as employees, um, and therefore they're entitled to minimum wage and overtime, um, unless an, unless an exception applies, um, and workers' compensation, and, and so forth. Um, So uh, usually a member of the crew who's going to be on set at hours that you're going to determine and they're gonna be working exclusively on your project, um, usually they are considered an employee. Um, I think the reason a lot of independent filmmakers don't do that is because they, well, they can't afford with the budget that they have to make all of the payments. I mean, for one thing, they, they have to go through the hassle of withholding payments in order to make tax payments, um, you know, uh, and that and listing that on the form W two. And
0: paying for pay, yeah. a payroll company if you're not going to write the checks yourself, a payroll company will handle the taxes, but they cost money. Or you can do all the tax stuff yourself, but then you have to do all the tax stuff yourself. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, but yes, if you want to be if you want to be technical about it, yes, they they probably are employees for the purposes of California law, and likely for the purposes of, of other states' law as well.
0: Yeah. Um, I, anybody who you tell the hours what, how they are supposed to do their job and what time they're supposed to show up as an employee. Mm. That said, micro budget filmmakers tend to still do independent contractor like Chris said, you just can't afford the option, the other the alternative. But it's always a risky business. Um, yeah. Actors are the same. SAG expects you to pay them as employees. Yeah. But <laughs> usually we don't. Is, uh, it's all kind of. Uh, it, it's that AB five laws really screwed a lot of um, independent filmmakers, independent businesses or small businesses that that thrive on the contract worker. And most like I'm a contract worker when I direct, I prefer to be a contract worker because I don't want you to take my taxes out. I want to deal with yep. that on my own and do write offs and stuff. So I'll have like you, know, you can have a loan out company. You can you know form your, your LLC or your S Corp to be able to do that if you are the crew getting paid. Right. Um, But it's still a fine line when you're the employee, you're the employer paying the people who have these loan out corps. There's still such a you got to be really careful.
1: Yeah. And what what Jen is talking about is there's a a business to business exception in the AB5 law so that if you're paying someone's entity. Um, that regularly does the business that they're doing on your set. Like if if it's a loan out company, like Jem was saying, for a guy who typically does, uh, you know, who, who typically is a director of photography, um, then it's more likely that you can essentially treat that person as an independent contractor because you're going to be paying the entity, and you're you're not going to need to, uh, in, in most circumstances, to withhold uh, taxes from the amount that you pay.
0: Um, okay, here's a question I get a lot. Do I need to register my script with WGA and copyright? Do I need to register my film with the copyright?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, distributors will usually ask for a copyright registration certificate, and that's something that you do want to take care of. Uh, ideally, before you go looking for a distributor, you're just going to need to to upload a cut of your film, and it can be you know a low resolution cut of the film to the U.S. Copyright Office website. Um, and you'll get a certificate back once you pay the fee relatively quickly. Uh, I think the fee now is up to, is is it $45 or $50? But yeah, it's a, it's a manageable amount that they charge. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're going to want a certificate. Uh, and uh, and I, I would suggest you do that as soon as possible so you don't hold up the distribution process. Um, the distributors that I've worked with haven't required WGA registration for the script, um, but that is is important if you want to use the WGA um, credit arbitration procedures and so forth. Uh, that, that may, yeah, that, that may be a little bit beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. Um, but yeah, for for distribution purposes, the most important thing to do is to get the uh, the copyright certificate.
0: And Pacifico says it's 45 bucks, which is relatively cheap in the realm of things we have to get (laughs) in production and production. Um, Okay, another thing I'm asked about a lot is, can I use someone else's video or audio clip in my film? Will it affect my ability to get distribution? Um, And how do I determine whether a clip is fair use or not?
1: Sure. Um, The safest way to use a video or audio clip created by someone else is of course, to get their written permission. But if you can't do that, um, and I've seen some productions that, that that can't do that because they want to use five seconds of a news clip from 1965 or something like that. And NBC News told them, no, we, yeah, we don't allow our use of our clips ever. Um, it's possible that even though you don't have the authorization of the creator, you may still, your use of the clip may still be considered what's called fair use under the law. And so you won't be subject to copyright infringement liability for using it. Um, The thing is that the test that the courts use for deciding whether an alleged copyright infringement is fair use, it it takes a a bunch of different factors into account, and it's far from black and white. So it's not easy to determine um, with 100% certainty whether you fall within the fair use test. If someone sues you for copyright infringement for using their clip without permission, then the judge may rule in your favor based on fair use, but The judge might also rule for the other side. So litigation has a lot of uncertainties and it's obviously expensive. Um, The fair use issue as a practical matter um, usually comes into play when you're getting errors and omissions insurance for your film, uh, which your distributor is almost certainly gonna require you to get. So errors and omissions insurance is meant to cover you and the distributor who will ask to be named on your your E&O policy uh, in the event that someone sues claiming that your film violates their intellectual property rights. Uh, If you're using a clip that you don't have the permission to use, but you're claiming fair use, that increases the risk of litigation. And so you'll have to disclose that to the insurer and you may also, and probably the distributor as well, and you may have to pay a higher premium to your insurer as a result. Um, With all that being said, if you wanna get a good idea of whether the fair use doctrine protects your use of a clip in your film, there are a couple of issues to consider. Uh, the first is the 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 degree to which your use of the clip is transformative is the term that's used in the law. So does your presentation of the clip change the clip or alter the clip in some meaningful way? Like for, for example, um, suppose you played in your film uh, 10 seconds of a Disney song, like part of your world, but you pitch shift it way down to make it sound all like evil and death metal-like. Um, that, that would be a transformative use because it it altered the clip and it presents the clip in a very different context from uh, the the original Little Mermaid that it appeared in. Um, The second factor is uh, that how long is the clip that you're using? Uh, The shorter, the better, of course. The the shorter the clip um, that you use, the more likely it is to be considered fair use. Um, Another issue is whether uh, your use of the clip is going to contribute significantly to the market value of your film. And that will also turn, that will also depend on the length of the clip and how significant the role is that it plays in your film. Like is the fact that you had that five-second news broadcast in the background, is that gonna entice viewers to see your film, at least from the point of view of the court? So there are some complicated factors to be considered, which is why I always say, the best thing to do is to get written permission if you can, um, and also avoid paying a higher insurance premium.
0: Now, is there's some, there's, parity is covered as, Fair, right? Like, so if you did that Little Mermaid song clip and made it death metal on purpose as a parody, you would then be okay, right? The,
1: um, yeah, I mean, for for a parody, I would recommend not using the actual clip just to be as safe as possible. Like, maybe you know, make your make your own version. Uh, ideally, change the lyrics and so forth. Like, if you're doing a Weird Al style parody song, that's you know, I mean, even though he typically asks for permission, he, he doesn't always need to um, to do his stuff. Uh, but yes, parody is an example of what I called a transformative use before because it changes the context in, in which the clip is presented.
0: Uh, and then things like having, like in Beethoven, we used paintings of a friend of mine, like the piano paintings on the wall. Um, we also had the Kauai, uh is that the name of the piano company? Yeah. You could see that logo in every shot because it's just on the piano. Yeah. What is the difference between being okay to have something in your film versus you better get a permission to use that? Because we're not now we're not talking about clips or audio. We're talking about actual visual.
1: Yeah. Uh, if we're talking about a painting, then that's someone, something that someone has made a creative contribution to, then that's likely to be protected by copyright. Uh, and you want to get a release from the person who did the painting or or some sort of piece of art or if it's a, a, a news clip like we were talking about before. Um, if it's a logo, that is usually not protected by copyright. Now, it is; it, it may be protected by trademark, but the fact that you show the logo in your film doesn't by itself necessarily create a, a trademark infringement. Um, because in order to show that someone infringed a trademark, you have to show that not only did, did the defendant, did the person who made the film Um, display the mark, but they also did it in a way that, uh, that would cause a reasonable person to believe that they were somehow associated with the brand. Like if you showed a Nike sneaker logo or something like that in your film, then if Nike was suing for trademark infringement, they'd have to show that your use of the mark implied that you had something to do with Nike sneakers, that you were like endorsed or sponsored by them or something like that. For most of the uses that happen in independent film, like if somebody, if you see a Nike sneaker in a shot, um, that's not going to imply that the film was endorsed by Nike, or that um, that you have some kind of business relationship with Nike. So normally, when filmmakers are worried about that kind of thing, um, I, I I usually am able to you know talk them off the ledge and calm them down. Uh, just don't try to make your own Nike commercial, <laughs> right? And show the Nike logo.
0: Well, I think the other thing is this is why. You have to pay so much for, you know, Arizona Mission insurance, yeah. because then if Nike makes a claim, the insurance basically can help handle that. And, you yeah. know, is not it's one of the most expensive things you get when you get to distribution. I think we pay two grand Yeah. Uh, for, you know, it's a, it's not fun.
1: <laughs> yeah. And also it needs to, it needs to cover the whole period of the contract with the distributor, which may be up to 10 years. And that's one of the reasons why, or maybe even more, uh, which is another reason why it's expensive. I've seen some people pay, you know, four or $5,000 for, you know, insurance for an indie film. So I, we, we kind of got off easy with that.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, we're getting, we're wrapping up here. So if you guys have any questions that we haven't answered, please put them in the box. Um, what else do I have? So, well, I guess we just talked about, you don't have to blur out the logos and such. Um, so I think the final thing on on legal stuff as an indie filmmaker, what is the best way, I mean, entertainment lawyers are not usually affordable if you're doing a micro budget feature. So what is something you can recommend, I guess, to get by or to be, you know, for them to be okay? Are there any like main like make sure you do X,Y,Z?
1: Yeah um I I do like the um the uh, the independent filmmaker the uh, what is it called the um the pocket lawyer for filmmakers um I do think that's a pretty good guide uh sometimes because you know lawyers typically charge by the hour and I think that's one of the most intimidating things about using a lawyer for an independent film um if you don't feel like you have the budget for that then you may be able to negotiate a flat rate arrangement with a lawyer uh you may be able to uh, give them, I mean, particularly if it's a project that they're really passionate about. I've done that this for a couple of projects where I'm I'm gonna get a share of the profits as well. Although as one of the comments, you know, it observed, it's not likely that most indie films are going to make a profit. But because I because I really wanted to help with the project and I believed in it, uh, that I helped with it. So, you know, in, in a way, it's a lot like cast and crew who become involved in, in indie film uh you could you could find an attorney who's really passionate about the film that you want to work on. There are attorneys can be passionate about things, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh and so that yeah, that's what I would recommend um and or you may have a, a friend who, you know, is just willing to give a little bit of advice but not draft contracts and negotiate with the other side. So, uh there are there are a number of different ways to to finagle it if you want to get some kind of legal advice without paying a big hourly rate.
0: Uh James asked a question I get asked a lot as well. Would you recommend a freelancer set up an S-Corp or LLC as their umbrella production
1: company? Uh, I think if it makes, well, if it makes sense, um, if you're going to receive enough money that's going to make paying the minimum tax justified, like if you're setting up a California LLC, you're going to have an $800 uh, minimum tax for the first year. And if you think that it's worthwhile for you, um, given that, uh, to start a production company, I would recommend forming an LLC. Um, an LLC does help to protect you from personal liability in the event that there is some kind of litigation, which is, as Jim was saying before, is a high quality problem, because that means that you made some money if, <laughs> if somebody is suing. But that's the main reason why you want to have a business entity like an LLC, is to make sure that uh, the anyone who sues based on the film can't get at your personal assets. And it's also a reason why indie filmmakers tend to have a, a, an umbrella production company um, like you were talking about and uh, produ- and an LLC that's separate from that, that's devoted specifically to the film.
0: That's what I was going to say. I think most, um, when you get up into higher budgets, they tend to do an LLC for each film. Um, the other thing about LLCs in California at least is you don't have to pay the first year franchise tax board fee. So you could do your LLC for a year and then close it, <laughs> It's just one way to get around that $800 if you need it just for like a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally am a fan of S Corp over LLC, but I I did it for like a year once. And it's a lot of work because you have to pay yourself and there's all this stuff that's related. My current accountant says you should not form an LLC unless you're making like 150K a year or more um, because it's not worth it. So you really want to talk to your CPA or whoever you trust with your um, finances and your taxes to help you make that decision on when it's time. Um, in the meantime, I've done a DBA forever. A DBA is like 45 bucks to run it in the paper. And it's you know like a, it's like 20 bucks or something to film with. It's under hundred dollars to do everything for a DBA. And then you can have a bank account where people can write checks to like for Mike, they can write to hard on fire productions. And it goes into that a bank account and all my production funds are separate. But I don't have the legal protection that Chris talked about. Um, But I guess I'm also like, well, if you want my ten bucks in the bank? (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's like a personal decision you pretty much have to make. Lots of questions coming in. Let me see if I can grab these from the top. Um, So. Jesse's asking about assumption agreements. Uh, Is that something you know about, especially as it applies to SAG after residuals?
1: Have you heard um, of the agreement? Rise to sag actor residuals. Uh, well, um, an assumption agreement uh, could mean a bunch of different things in different contexts. Um, it could mean, an ass- it sounds like you're talking about an assignment of the right to receive residuals, like sometimes it refers to an assignment. Um, I, I think I'd need to know a little bit more about how you intended to use this uh, in the context of making your film to be able to, to talk about that.
0: Um, there is some good chats going, uh, Harpy, I don't know if you've seen that Pacifico has answered your question pretty well in the chat about rights and changing names and stuff. Um, John asks, is public domain still considered 70 years or has Disney extended this definition?
1: The, um, for anything, I think the the copyright rule right now is that for anything that's created after January 1st, 1978, the copyright protection, it lasts for the life of the author Plus 70 years.
0: Uh, so it's funny that you mentioned this because I know that someone just made a, a horror movie, Winnie the Pooh in the UK, yeah. and they're fine to use it because Disney does not have rights to that anymore.
1: So,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, how does um, release contracts help an agreement with making a movie and distributing a theatrical versus non-theatrical?
1: Um, I think with the release contract, um, either you're talking about the distribution agreement itself that you sign with the distributor, or maybe you're talking about the the agreement between the distributor and the chain of theaters that's going to be putting out the film. Um, I mean, uh, either I mean, in in, in you're you're going to need a distribution agreement regardless of whether you're doing a theatrical versus non-theatrical release. Uh, in if we're talking about a contract between the distributor and the theater then um, yeah, then a release contract is gonna be helpful as well because the terms of their relationship are gonna to need to be set forth in writing as well. I, hopefully that, that's helpful in answering the question. Hopefully I understood it.
0: Um, and Lucretia says, does your LLC have to be registered in the state where you will be filming? Uh,
1: no, not necessarily. Um, if you uh, If you make money in a state other than the state in which the LLC is registered, then the tax laws of the state where you film or, or, or where you made the money um, are, are more likely to apply. Um, so you won't, even if you have a Delaware LLC, which you know a lot of people choose because of the corporate tax related advantages of incorporating in Delaware, uh, you will still have to be taxed by the state of California. If you film in California and the California taxing authorities are gonna, they'll, they'll certainly claim that the money that you made was made in California for the purposes of tax law, so it doesn't. Pre- doesn't it work
0: where like okay, so if I'm living in California, I'm filming in Delaware, so I'm like okay, I'm gonna make an LLC for the film, I'm gonna film in Delaware, all my money is gonna be in Delaware, but I live in California. Aren't I still responsible for California taxes?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you may you may have to pay taxes in both states. I mean, it really really depends on. Um, well, yeah, the, the, because the tax laws are going to differ between California and Delaware, and I'm not a tax expert, but there's there's always a possibility that the, the taxing authority, that the government is going to claim that either because you reside in a certain state or because you filmed in a certain state and so forth, that that's an adequate connection between you and that state to require you to pay taxes to to that government.
0: Uh, Harpete really would like to know, how will court decide on who's the original writer of the subject, who holds the moral rights versus ownership, who will get compensation for the subject script? Uh, Is that all worked out in the contracts? Yes?
1: Uh, Yes, that's right. Um, When you sign an agreement with the screenwriter, um, I mean, normally that will at least implicitly acknowledge that the screenwriter is the original author of the script. Um, we were talking a little bit about Writers Guild arbitration. If there's a dispute about who the actual author of the script is, then it may need to be resolved by the WGA or or possibly uh, by a court. But I think in the context of most indie films, the issue of who the original author of the script is doesn't usually come up. Um,
0: And I think that we always put in the thing about like uh, you get credit at producer's discretion. So Mm -hmm. we can actually... In legal, legally, have the right to credit whoever we want, however we want. Is that correct?
1: Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, if if you well, that that well, that's a good clause to put in your agreement um, that you the production company have the right to determine uh, in your discretion how people are going to be credited. If you're dealing with someone with a lot of bargaining power, uh, like you're dealing with name actors and so forth, then they're probably going to ask. For there to be some kind of provision in the contract regarding how they'll be credited. Like, um, I need to have my own separate card or something like that, or I need to say, and featuring me. Um, but if you have such a clause, then I would advise that you you say, well, okay, we've got this clause in the agreement, but uh, all remaining decisions regarding credits in the film are going to be in the production company's sole discretion.
0: And also often with you're an in indie, in indie, especially, but really even big budgets in Hollywood, um, you have your script from your writer and then usually your producers are taking a pass on it and then your director's taking a pass on it. Um, but that doesn't mean it still could say written, you know, that writer still gets screen credit unless, mm-hmm. you know, say the director's really wants the extra credit on it. Mm-hmm. I've, I've rewritten a lot of scripts for things I've directed that I haven't taken writer credit on,
1: even yeah. though
0: I made it so much better <laughs> than it was. Yeah. Um, should you copyright... WGA uh, no budget short scripts or just feature scripts to
1: Well if if you want to do distribution for your short then I then you're going to have to get a copyright certificate and uh, you know I was surprised recently I found out that there are distributors that deal specifically with shorts mm-hmm. um and uh so you you may be interested in doing that um, if you want to appear on one of these YouTube channels that shows specific types of shorts which are popping up as well like dust or something like that um they, they may require that as well because they're kind of acting as a distributor.
0: Well, I will tell you, I've, show, I've sold three short films, two to DVD companies and one uh, to like a, um, uh, a theory, like a shutter type thing. And none of them asked for copyright on mm-hmm. those shorts, just so you know. But you're still signing agreements with those people saying that you own the rights. So you might as well get a copyright so that it's extra security for you. Um, that it's your project and you don't have any issues later, but short film distribution, legal stuff is so much easier than <laughs> feature stuff for sure. Um, so Pacifico, uh, we got so many trying to find more questions here. Um, Pacifico, thank you for all of your, he, Pacifico Studios has been in there giving, giving advice as we've gone through this. So that's been helpful, helpful, helpful. Uh, Gadali says a lot of tech companies are told, to incorporate in Delaware because of tax laws and the low cost—is that applicable to films and product or production companies? I mean, you kind of touched base on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can you can benefit from the Delaware tax laws um, by incorporating there. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, um, I, I haven't. It, it, it's funny. I, I mean, even though you'll see a big entity like Disney, you know, they're they're incorporated in Delaware. Um, usually, I, I guess maybe for convenience. Uh, people in the film industry on the indie film level tend to incorporate more in, in California and in the Western states, but it's not 100% required that you do that.
0: Okay, so we're going to wrap up here because I want to show you guys uh, the pick of the month for June, I think it is. I don't even know. June, May, May pick of the month, I think, uh, from our Black Magic Collective Film Festival. And it's very fun. You should stick around and watch it. Uh, so if you keep, if you still have questions for Chris, go to our Black Magic Collective private Facebook group and put your questions in there and I'll make sure that Chris can scoot over and try to help the best he can um, to help you out. So that said, thank you, uh, Chris. We will say that the bottom line of this whole thing is make sure you have solid contracts that protect your arse.
1: Yes. (laughs) That's That's a good way to put it.
0: Bottom line. Um, Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Chris. And Kayla will take us into our pick of the month, and we will see you guys in the Black Magic Collective private Facebook group.
1: Thank
0: you. You've been listening to the Black Magic Collective podcast. If you're having fun talking tech and the biz with us, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Please leave reviews as it helps others find the show so we can keep making great content for you. We're also on all of your favorite podcast apps, as well as YouTube, and Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please visit blackmagiccollective.com to join and be part of the filmmaker community. All of our events and programs are free to filmmakers, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Black Magic Design.